0: As you noticed if you listen to our last episode, we're doing something different while we're on a break this summer. We're sharing episodes from other podcasts we've come to know and love. Today is another episode from the Reach Out and Read podcast series. Reach Out and Read is an evidence-based, primary care clinic-delivered early childhood literacy promotion program that uses the regular well-child visits to facilitate discussion around literacy and encourage shared reading at home. Beyond the expected benefits to children and their families, Research has found that Reach Out and Read boosts clinic morale, increases provider satisfaction, improves patient-clinician relationships, and promotes a literacy-rich environment. For more information, you can visit their website at reachoutandread.org. Today's episode is about trauma. It's shockingly common. Almost half of us experience at least one significant trauma in childhood. Yet trauma-engendered behaviors are often met with what's wrong with you when, when, As Dr. Bruce Perry relates, a better framing is, what happened to you? We think this conversation is especially relevant as the healthcare workforce begins processing our collective trauma from the COVID pandemic. Dr. Perry co-authored a book with Oprah Winfrey that may help us disentangle trauma and understand the powerful protective role of healthy relationships with family, community, and culture. Reestablishing those relationships and repairing the rents in our work communities too is an essential part of moving forward out of the challenges of the last three years. Thank you to the Reach Out and Read podcast for letting us share this episode with you. They've got 80 other episodes of Good Conversations. You might want to have a look at some others. But right now, let's have a listen to Dr. Nafsaria's conversation with Dr. Perry.
1: Childhood trauma is shockingly common. A study by the National Survey of Children's Health found that almost 50% of children in the United States have had at least one significant traumatic experience. I've spent a lot of time talking about this at conferences in an effort to help people understand a key factor which lies behind both behavior and the trajectory of one's life. A major figure in that field of work is our guest today. His research concludes that Quote, your history of relational health, your connectedness to family, community, and culture is more predictive of your mental health than your history of adversity. And he goes farther to say, connectedness has the power to counterbalance adversity. Today, we're talking about the role healthy relationships can play in trauma recovery and how treatment should start by changing the commonly asked question, what's wrong with you, to what happened to you? Our guest is Dr. Bruce Perry. He is the principal at the Neurosequential Network and adjunct professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago and at the School of Allied Health, College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Over the last 30 years, Dr. Perry has been an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and the neurosciences, holding a variety of academic positions. His work on the impact of abuse, neglect, and trauma on the developing brain has impacted clinical practice, programs, and policy across the world. He is the co-author of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, a best-selling book based on his work with maltreated children, and Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. His most recent book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey, was released in 2021. Welcome to the show. Thank,
2: Thank you much. very much. Happy to be here.
1: So let's start off with the title of your latest book. Um, do you want to expound on on what you mean by that?
2: Sure. That phrase has actually been used in the trauma field for quite a long time, and Its origins are from a conversation in a team meeting that Dr. Sandra Bloom was having with uh, people that work with her many, many years ago as they were beginning to bring an awareness about trauma into traditional mental health practice. And Mm -hmm. part of what they were recognizing was that the conventional lens of just kind of looking at the symptoms that somebody had Mm-hmm. Was no longer that helpful with some of the the people they were working with, mm-hmm. and so somebody in her group, Joe Fodorero, a social worker, basically said, "You know, it's almost as if we're really reframing what we do to go from what's wrong with you to what happened to you,"
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that was such a powerful reframe sure. that it was it echoed through our field for quite a long time, and. Mm-hmm. The reason it became the title of this book was because I, I'd, I'd known oprah for many many years and uh, she asked me to, to be part of a 60 minutes piece and mm-hmm. after that conversation we were having lunch and she was curious about why this boy that we had uh, been talking about who'd been given all kinds of opportunities you know mm-hmm. additional care tutoring you know people that seemed to be caring for him and and he still was struggling, and, 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 and she said, you know, what's wrong with him? Like, what, why would that happen? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, the real question isn't what's wrong with him. It's like, what happened to him sure. that he wasn't able to take advantage of all these things that people were offering? That, that he didn't see that experience the same way that, that you do. Yeah. And it, it, now, the, the irony is that I'd been talking to Oprah for 30 years about trauma, Mm-hmm. And about developmental trauma and developmental experiences and bad outcomes and all kinds of other things. And it was at that point that it was like a, a light bulb went off in her head. She's like, mm-hmm. she finally
3: got crystallized
2: it. all that yeah, stuff I've yeah. been talking about. And I realized what a crappy teacher I must be. That <laughs> it took me 30 years to finally get the concept that developmental experiences are profoundly powerful in shaping who we are. Mm-hmm. And not just bad developmental experiences as you mentioned in the intro Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. good developmental experiences
3: you know these things
2: shape our biology they shape the way we we feel the way we function and that's why that's such an important question i think
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It does speak to the power of um, sometimes a, a carefully crafted short phrase or a couple of sentences. Sometimes can convey what uh, we might have spent chapters and chapters trying to, to exactly. elucidate. There, yeah,
3: sure. exactly. Yeah.
1: So let's let's define trauma a little more carefully here. So there's obviously good luck. Yeah, just <laughs> <for that. laughs> right. Uh, honestly,
2: so, you know, I mean. I don't want to anticipate where you're going with this, but Uh our field has had a hard time defining trauma. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's SAMHSA's definition, which is one of them. So SAMHSA for our listeners is the substance abuse and mental health services administration. And they talk about the three E's event experience and, and effects. Is is that a kind of a framework that you use? And Uh can you say more about that?
2: I, I do use it, and I like mm-hmm. it, because it captures the complexity of developmental uh, adversity
3: mm-hmm. to
2: some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, the the word trauma, I, I, everybody uses it, right? I mean, you hear mm-hmm. people talking on the street that, oh, my God, I missed my bus, and I was late for work. It was traumatic. Right, right. And, and then you hear people talking about, you know, a kid saw somebody get shot. That was traumatic. Right. And then you hear, you know, you, you so the language is used quite a bit and honestly it's been an impediment Mm -hmm. for the advancement of the field to get Mm -hmm. clarity about what do you mean by trauma when when we're studying it and if those of you who know much about this post-traumatic stress disorder what was considered traumatic has changed over the Mm -hmm. decades Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we continue to struggle with it and the reason i like that the three e formulation is it points out that there are these different Mm -hmm. elements there's the event, right? So mm-hmm. you get on the news and you go, oh, yeah, a, a school shooting. That, wow, that sounds traumatic. Mm-hmm. And Or a natural disaster. That's traumatic. Sure. Or mm-hmm. a, a child who is physically assaulted. That's traumatic.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But the truth is each one of those things uh, will have different impact on different people
3: mm-hmm. Uh
2: Depending upon how they internally respond to that event. Sure. And then uh, That internal response is going to have some long-term effects Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, lots of people have a bad thing happen in their life And for a few weeks they have completely predictable difficulty sleeping completely predictable uh, intrusive ideations, but over time that fades and the presence of healthy, buffering connections with people and the opportunity to talk it through with people they love and trust takes the power away from that, Mm -hmm. and they restore them, get back to sort of a normal level of regulation and functioning. Mm -hmm. But for some people Mm -hmm. who may not have the benefit of that, those effects persist. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I like the... That kind of the parsing out of what we mean, right. by it. you know, there's yeah. an event, and then how does that person experience the event, yeah. and and then what are, what's the impact of that event in the long term mm-hmm. for that person as they move forward?
1: Yeah, it it, it decouples all those pieces from one another because I, I imagine somebody might assume like, oh, this happened, therefore this and this are going to be the things that happened to that individual. And they may be extraordinarily different in each individual. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I remember uh, a clinical situation that I was involved in where a mother was robbed in a parking lot uh, at gunpoint and she had three kids with her, Mm -hmm. a baby, a toddler, and an Mm eight-year-old. And each one of those children and the mother had completely different effects. It was the same event. Mm Mm-hmm. But the baby was in mom's arms and Mm -hmm. felt safe because mom stayed calm Mm -hmm. and the baby didn't get upset. And there were no long-term effects Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the baby. Mm -hmm. The toddler thought was kind of confused Mm -hmm. and the eight-year-old really understood the level of danger. Right, right. So they all had very different internal responses and long-term effects. And the way we dealt with them and tried to help them were sort of was matched to where, Mm -hmm. where they were developmentally.
1: And that would argue for you know. There's been a lot of talk about the uh, the ACE score, right? The adverse childhood experiences score, but that right. only captures the first E there, right? The the event of what happened, exactly. and it That's doesn't necessarily right. get at the other two parts. Yeah,
2: exactly. And yeah. It, you know, it's it's interesting that you know that the ACE studies have been really landmark epidemiological studies in our mm-hmm. field. Yes. And now you and I, you know, we, we, we understand epidemiological studies, but that's like a 50,000 foot flyover. You're looking for yeah. sort of big trends and
3: mm-hmm. big phenomena. Sure. Uh-huh.
2: And I think one of the things that people have had a hard time sort of managing is understanding the difference between causality and correlation. Sure. Uh, recognizing that despite the value of this epidemiological perspective, it really mm-hmm. doesn't give you a good handle on using that same approach on an individual. Right. And for the very reasons you mentioned that, that different people are going to experience the event differently, depending upon their age, Mm -hmm. depending upon the presence of, of any kind of buffering Mm -hmm. factor.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think,
2: you know, as the field moves forward, those are the kinds of things that we have to tease out a little bit better. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. So I want to move on to, uh, there's a concept you use of the the upside down triangle to uh, explain how the the brain is organized. Can you describe yep. that concept for us?
2: Yeah, I, I before I became a physician, I was trained as a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. and you know one of the things you learn both in medicine and in, as a neuroscience graduate student are the the complexities of the brain and, mm-hmm. and uh, neuroanatomy. And one of the things you learn really early on is that. Uh, the brain has this hierarchical organization. There's a, the top part, the cortex, which many of us have heard that word. Mm-hmm. But the cortex is really at the very top of our brain. It's involved in the most complex functions like thinking and language and reflecting on the past and anticipating the future. And it, But to get to the cortex, mm-hmm. the we have to go through systems that are Originating lower in the brain. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: So these systems that are lower in the brain are more regulatory and they're involved in simpler functions. And then there's kind of a bunch of things in the middle of the brain that are involved in a little bit more complex functions, but they're not yet the really complex, e- uniquely human functions.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so, you know, and this is a hard, this has been a, a bit of challenging part of our work is taking the remarkable complexity of the neurosciences and trying to reduce that to Mm, exportable and understandable heuristics. So over time we just developed this, this, I draw a triangle. All right, here's the way the brain's organized. You know, you've got a bottom part down here, you've got a top part up here and your sensory input, you know, smell, touch, taste, all that comes into the lower part of the brain first and if the signal that comes in is of sufficient intensity, that part of the brain will act. Mm-hmm. Like, like when you accidentally touch a hot you know, uh, pan, mm-hmm. you withdraw your hand before you even know what burned your finger. Mm-hmm. And because if you kept your hand on there long enough to sort of get up into the middle part of your brain and go, oh, that's tissue damage and your finger's burning, and then to your <laughs> cortex to go, oh, let's localize where that's coming from, and then send a signal down to withdraw it. You'd burn yeah. your finger Yeah, much worse than just immediate removal. So the brain has these mechanisms to essentially judge incoming input
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then act in a way that's uh, proportional to the threat.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so the lower parts of the brain do a lot of acting before the smart part of your brain mm-hmm. has an opportunity to really process the entire situation. Mm-hmm. And this is why first impressions work, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. You know, you you know, you meet somebody, you don't know anything about them. And but they happen to have a bow tie on. And and you associate bow ties with really smart people, because your professor, you know, the chairman God. of your department had a bow tie, and he's like, mm-hmm. Oh wow, he was a smart guy. And you see they got gray hair. So, like, you know, part of your brain associates gray hair with Wisdom and so you uh, you make these judgments about the person before you know mm-hmm. anything about them, right? And and your brain does that with everything and mm-hmm. and here's here's the, the key takeaway from this is that the human brain Like all other mammalian brains
3: mm-hmm.
2: is organized to act before you feel
3: mm-hmm.
2: and to act and feel before you think mm-hmm. and and that's sort of the exact opposite of the way we teach, we're trying to get our kids to grow up, right? We want kids to use their words. Mm-hmm. You know, measure twice, cut once, look right, before right. you leap.
3: Yeah.
2: We have all those sayings because we're fighting our biology. <laughs> sure. I mean, if, if we didn't, if that wasn't an issue for human beings, we wouldn't have any of those sayings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But part of what we're doing, civilization is basically trying to deal with that that very simple sequence mm, and right. you know everybody I, I don't care how advanced you are how educated you are how privileged you are every day every single person has something that they mm-hmm. wish oh, i shouldn't have said that or i right, probably right. should have done it or i could have said that better or i shouldn't sure. have sent that email mm-hmm. or that tweet or whatever and it's because that there's a part of us that acts before we think everything through
1: mm, sure So you mentioned regulation earlier, and this is a a term that gets used so much uh, in developmental behavioral pediatrics and all. And you specifically talked about the difference between regulation and wellness and about a concept called the tree of regulation. Can you spend some time just helping us understand what regulation really means?
2: Well, again, that's, 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 that language is, is some of the stuff that in my field gets thrown around, as you mm-hmm. point out. And, and there's not a lot of, you know, different people may define this a little differently than I do. But in my head, I just tend to think of things like a physiologist, that when you've got a system that's in balance, you know, we have all of these systems that mm-hmm. are basically intended to keep us alive. Right. The systems are on our cardiorespiratory functioning and the systems are on where we are in space, our motor vestibular systems. And,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and then we have these higher order systems that are involved in connecting and managing our relationships and so forth. But all of these have a certain equilibrium where we, that is familiar to us and it's where the system is in balance. Mm -hmm. And so if something happens to push us out of balance we call that a stressor Mm -hmm. So like if you have to run up the stairs and you have a certain level of cardiorespiratory fitness You're gonna have to start to take deeper breaths and more frequent breaths get more oxygen Mm -hmm. And that's a stressor Mm -hmm. But and so your brain at some point will tell you You need to stop running up these steps and sit Mm -hmm. down Mm -hmm. and then you get back into equilibrium but that happens with eating, it happens with breathing, it happens with bladder control, it happens with, motor, you know, where we are in space, sure. with walking, so. it happens with sleep, it happens with relationships, it happens with everything. And so all of these things, when you are in uh, these homeostatic states, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty, you're not cold, you don't feel threatened, you don't feel challenged, you feel, you're in a safe and familiar environment, you know what to anticipate, what to expect, you are regulated. And when mm-hmm. you are globally regulated, then o- certain parts of your cortex open up. Mm-hmm. That's when you can be most reflective. You can play with things that you've already stored. You're not being asked. You're not, you're not being challenged to store new things, mm-hmm. right? You, you're right. in a place where you're not getting a lot of new input. It's yeah. all familiar. So you, you play with what you yeah. put in your head. And that's where sort of this creative moment comes from right,
3: where right. you
2: have these aha moments. And that could happen when you're in a shower or you're running or you're taking a walk in a familiar neighborhood or or you're driving home from work or you're on public transportation. You know, you've done it a million times. So your brain is familiar with all those cues and then it plays with what happened today. And then that's where your aha moments come from.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that it, uh, it argues also for that downtime and, you know, not overscheduling uh, and things like that. So.
2: You're absolutely right. Yeah, And, and I and think this... that's one of the things that's missing in modern education is that we,
3: mm-hmm.
2: we you know, with good intention, mm-hmm. we overschedule mm-hmm. our kids mm-hmm. and, and we do not value enough mm-hmm. reflective time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's why I think getting rid of music yeah. and sport in, in education is mm-hmm. not a good idea.
1: And you made a connection to this in terms of parenting and and generations. Um, You said in your book, an overwhelmed, exhausted, dysregulated parent will have a hard time regulating a child consistently and predictably. Um, So you can also see how that cycle can feed on itself as well. Uh,
2: Absolutely. Well, And and this is your field. And I'm sure you talk about this a lot in this podcast, Mm -hmm. that human beings are very relational creatures mm-hmm. you know, that, mm-hmm. and that particularly with little ones and an adult mm-hmm. there is this sort of po- contagion mm-hmm. of affect and contagion of motor mm-hmm. movement and contagion of really everything that that adult does is to some degree going to result in a mirroring mimicking mm-hmm. uh, aspect to the infant so if, if, if an infant or young child is in the presence of an overwhelmed, exhausted, distracted, distressed adult,
3: mm-hmm.
2: that child reflects that internal state. And, and right. uh, that that's why it's so important to take care of our young, vulnerable mm-hmm. parents.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's really, you know, again, I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot on this podcast. When we make policy and practice recommendations that mm-hmm. don't understand the holistic nature of the developmental experience Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know it's well intended but they tend to always fall short right we we, we can't help babies without helping moms and we can't help moms without helping you know the the neighborhood and you Mm -hmm. have that means economic policy has to be you know really is Mm -hmm. connected to early childhood policy
1: Mm -hmm. among other things Yeah, it's that very much that uh, biopsychosocial eco model is is, as well in terms of thinking about all that. You know, I want to turn to the you mentioned, again, relational health, and there was a concept that you had about these reward buckets. Can you briefly explain that? And also then how does that play into like the early experiences of infants?
2: Yeah. So uh, if you look at a, a biological creature, mm-hmm. um, and, and thinking back to these homeostatic states, right? Mm-hmm. If you didn't have some mechanism to tell your body that you are getting dehydrated, mm-hmm. you would not seek out fluids, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would just you could get dehydrated, dehydrated, and then get sick, and then even die. So you have to have right. some kind of mechanism to. Uh, tell you when you are out of balance Mm -hmm. now the mechanism for that usually is a sensation of distress right Mm -hmm. you you, you know you feel thirsty hungry Mm -hmm. anxious cold whatever so there's a Mm -hmm. distressing feeling right but there also has to be some form of positive rewarding impact for doing the right thing right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when you do something that promotes homeostasis or safety you should feel pleasure from it Mm-hmm. And so there's this yin yang organization to the reward systems in our brain. Mm-hmm. That when you do something that promotes and connects with somebody who will take care of you, you mm-hmm. feel safer and you and, and pleasure.
3: Mm-hmm. When
2: you uh, are disconnected from people who would keep you safe and take care of you, you feel distress.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so those two things pull you back to this point of health. Now the organization of that of, of that complex uh three-part association and three-part association for humans is uh all of the relational cues that go Mm -hmm. with connecting with a human a person Mm -hmm. and that gets connected to the neurobiology of reward which is connected to the neurobiology of of regulation of sort of the stress response sure and so it has its origins in early 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 life when the infant gets hungry Mm -hmm. thirsty or cold Mm -hmm. and and the present attentive and attuned caregiver Mm -hmm. comes and meets the fundamental needs of the infant Mm -hmm. and the infant's brain takes in all of the relational cues of this caregiver Mm -hmm. at the same time that they feel rewarded Mm -hmm. because uh, when you relieve physiological distress it gives you pleasure sure and you become regulated. So you start to Mm -hmm. weave together this complex set of associations between relationship reward and regulation. Mm -hmm. And as you get older and older, that, that, that's essentially the glue that makes human beings succeed as a species, right? The Mm -hmm. smile and the positive, positivity in the voice of the teacher. Uh, and Oh, that's so good. Keep that up. Mm -hmm. That is motivating and Mm -hmm. it's regulating Mm and, 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 Uh, we use that all throughout development and all Mm -hmm. throughout, you know, successful human endeavors is, is Mm -hmm. involved getting relational reward Mm -hmm. and relational regulation. And when you don't have people around who can provide that, Mm -hmm. you begin to feel more vulnerable, more anxious, more dysregulated, more distressed, more vulnerable for, for depression and anxiety, which is exactly what happened during the pandemic.
1: Right. Right. So it, it, I'm hearing two really important themes in what you just said here. One is this this notion that, um, you know, it's, it's the, almost the predictability of the world around you, right? That if you yeah. come to expect that the world is going to be a safe, loving, caring, nurturing place, or the flip, of course, an unsafe, yeah. unreliable, unpredictable, dangerous place, there's that effect. But then also you said, moments right like there, that these repeated almost doses of this it's not just right. hi i'm going to be really attentive to you for an hour once a week right. uh right. that exactly. that it's it's right. that it's something that that's come even small small doses so to speak to use a medication metaphor um no, no, over we, we a
2: long period that's of time it. that's literally the language we use we, uh-huh. we talk about dosing and spacing and therapeutics mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right but the, the really mm-hmm. good thing about this is that to the brain a positive dose of connection is very brief yeah it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be you know like you, as a somebody listening to this doesn't have to go oh my god i have to spend all these hours with right, you know, right. face-to-face contact continually relationally reinforcing that that's not true right. you know it's it's the tiniest little moments that can have power now, early in life, you need a lot of these little doses, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to build in the biology of of connection the right way. But mm-hmm. once it's built in, you need you need little booster shots, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they don't have to be huge. Um, and I, we do a lot of work in education where teachers are like, "Oh my God, how are we going to do this?" I'm like, you know what? Just be present. You know, when you're talking mm-hmm. to a kid mm-hmm. about anything, if you're present for four seconds. They mm-hmm. feel it
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that'll fuel them sure. all day long. Now, it's better to have more than one four second interaction. Right. But, you know, that's a very, that's more powerful than you realize. But the key here's the key you have to be present, right? Yeah. If you're dysregulated sure. and you're over, you know, you're preoccupied with your next appointment and the next class and you can't really, you go, oh, oh that's really good. That's good, 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 good. Great, good work. Yeah. But if you just calm yourself, get regulated and be present, you have this incredible power to dose that kind of mm. regulating reward just just like you mentioned.
1: And of course seeing that this is the reach out and read podcast, I would uh, be amiss if I didn't say that that even short moments of shared reading on a regular basis, I imagine would would provide absolutely. some of those moments yeah yeah
2: absolutely yeah. and and you yeah. know when you think about it as you guys talk about a million times on this podcast, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. When you are with a child and you're reading, these little moments, they turn these little doses into a dose of touch me, a dose of let's look at this. It's not just the reading. The reading is a powerful vehicle and positive things do happen, but it's how reading brings the relational glue into the mix in a way that ultimately makes the child, as they get older, get pleasure from reading. Mm-hmm. And feel regulated when they read, right? It right, doesn't right. come from reading; it comes from reading in the arms of somebody that you feel safe with, mm-hmm. and that has made you feel special, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. loves you. True. And that's, I think, the power of reading.
1: So we could spend hours, of course, talking about uh, all these things so much further. I, I, uh, but we are out of time. I, I want to close with one broad question. If I could, if I could give you a magic wand, um, and <laughs> you could, and you could create. Uh, a change in the world um, around these concepts of of trauma and relational health and and all that. What would you like most to see happen? what would be what would be the thing that you think would make the biggest impact out there?
2: Well, you know human beings are storytelling creatures.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and I think and from our work on development and lots of others, other people's work on development. We know that the first months of life are incredibly transformative. You know, there's tremendous power for, for providing consistent, predictable good things. And there's also a high vulnerability to chaos and, and distress.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So if we could get enough people to understand that, I think mm-hmm. that that would be the biggest uh, change possible. And I think the biggest way to get that, that to change is not through our, our regular mechanisms, don't work very well. I mean, we have these academic-driven you know, right. policy papers, and how much, you've probably been to 50 meetings where we talk right. about this, right?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: I actually think that we have to get our storytellers to, to embed this content into their work, into mm-hmm. sitcoms and soap operas and movies and comics. And this is why I wrote this book with Oprah. This is why we wrote this book For people who would not go to conferences, for people who will Mm -hmm. not pick up the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines about trauma, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: people who uh, are sort of in the general broad population. And I think the more these concepts are made digestible and Mm -hmm. and carried in those vehicles, the more likely they are to get out there. So that's what I do.
1: Wonderful. I, so my takeaway from that is that I should just keep podcasting more. So there you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think podcasting is a great way to get stuff out there. Think about it. The average number of people that read an academic article is 11.
1: Right, right. Thank you so much. Uh, this was just a delightful, eye-opening conversation. And, and, and also just thank you for just the uh, extraordinary work that uh, you've you've done and continue to do. It's really, uh, really amazing. Uh,
2: thank you very much i appreciate the opportunity i think you guys are doing i think uh, this is a great program and keep it up
1: welcome to today's 33rd page or something extra for you our listeners one of the themes that came through in today's show is about relationships about connection and it reminded me of a poem that's somewhat known but not the best known of khalil gibran called on friendship and a youth said speak to us of friendship and he answered saying your friend is your needs answered he is your field which you sow with love and reap with thanksgiving and he is your board and your fireside for you come to him with your hunger and you seek him for peace when your friend speaks his mind you fear not the nay in your own mind nor do you withhold the eye and when he is silent your heart ceases not to listen to his heart for without words in friendship all thoughts all desires all expectations are born and shared with joy that is unacclaimed when you part from your friend you grieve not for that which you love most in him may be clearer in his absence as the mountain to the climber is clearer from the plain and let there be no purpose in friendship save the deepening of the spirit For love that seeks aught but the disclosure of its own mystery Is not love, but a net cast forth, and only the unprofitable is caught. And let the best be for your friend. If he must know the ebb of your tide, let him know its flood also. For what is your friend that you should seek him with hours to kill? Seek him always with hours to live. For it is his to fill your need, but not your emptiness. And in the sweetness of friendship, let there be laughter and sharing of pleasures. For in the dew of little things, the heart finds its morning and is refreshed. And that's today's 33rd page. You've been listening to the Reach Out and Read podcast. Reach Out and Read is a nonprofit organization that is the authoritative national voice for the positive effects of reading daily and supports coaches, and celebrates engaging in those language-rich activities with young children. We're continually inspired by stories that encourage language, literacy, and early relational health. Visit us at reachoutandread.org podcast to find out more. And don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Your feedback helps grow our podcast community and tells others that this podcast is worth listening to. Our show is a production of Reach Out and Read. Our producer is Jill Ruby. Jen Teigen is our National Director of Marketing and Communications. Thank you to Boise Paper for making a difference in local communities like ours and for sponsorship of our podcast. I'm your host, Dr. DePashenovsarya. I look forward to spending time with you soon. And remember,
3: books build better brains.